As a society, we are more connected now than what we have been at any other period of history. With almost everybody now instantly contactable at all times, we're able to receive second-by-second -second updates on the public and the personal about every single event that might be occurring across the globe to the point where it can be rather overwhelming. To put it simply, these days it seems that everything always happens so much. Vladimir Lenin once said that there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. Sure, he was talking about revolution, but the same sentiment can be felt for everyday life sometimes. It seems that we all follow the same pattern of long periods of routine followed by frantic bouts of action. History tends to follow this pattern too, more or less. But every now and then there is such an abundance of interconnected and completely isolated events that all happen concurrently that you do wonder how people 80 years ago dealt with everything happening so much. Such was the case in Australia in 1932. Times were truly dismal in ways that we can't really relate to. We were deep into the Great Depression at this point, with 33% of Australians unemployed, giving us the second highest rate of unemployment in the world at the time, second behind Germany. But when millions suffered, many of the uber-rich rode the Depression, indulging in all their sorts of vices, cocaine in particular, and police, instead of uh, focusing their efforts on arresting the rich and connected drug lords, instead rather focused on evicting the poor from their homes. Throughout the country, the unemployed workers' movement staged multiple battles against the police to prevent these evictions, but many were still left without a roof over their heads and tens of thousands of people became drifters, modern-day swaggies, refugees in their own country. For a lot of these people, all the great events of 1932 happened around them, rather than to them. But you do wonder how they might have felt for every sad, bad, tragic, inspiring and just plain weird thing that happened that year. We started 1932 with a brand new Prime Minister, Joseph Lyons. He would later die in office in 1939, becoming the first Prime Minister to do so. The previous Skull and Labour government had been accused of poor responses to the economic depression, which had led to a split in the party, with Lyons leaving to form the United Australian Party, which would later become the Liberal Party of Australia. While the remaining members of Labour split again, the disorganisation led to the UAP winning the December election in a landslide, with Labour retaining only 18 seats. Lyons, his wife and his 11 children moved into the lodge and began that year on a high. Although if Lyons was half as savvy as people now credit him to be, he probably knew that the fight with Labour was hardly over, not when there was the big fella up there in New South Wales by the name of Jack Lang. General news of the year started off bad, with the death of Albert Jacker on the 17th of January. Jacker had been a legend of the Great War as he was the first Australian to be rewarded the Victoria's Cross and became one of the most highly decorated servicemen of all time. His image was a well-known and loved one across the country, and even more than a decade after the end of the Great War, his face was seen in propaganda from state to state, solidifying the image of the tall, handsome, strong, clean-shaven Australian serviceman who was happy, willing and eager to put his body on the line for king and country. 
He had been a soldier at Gallipoli, then later across the Western Front, from the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Passchendaele, and the Spring Offensive. He showed incredible bravery and was wounded several times, including being exposed to mustard gas and being shot through the neck. Once the war was over, he'd returned home and started an electrical goods store. But like so many other salt-of-the-earth Aussies who'd returned from the war, the depression ruined Jacker. He ended up losing his store, falling into debt and was unemployed for several months. He did, however, manage to end up as the mayor of the city of St Kilda, and while serving, he tried his best to help those who were suffering as his was, defending evictees, calling for more government action to help the unemployed, and developing more public office jobs. But the stress in his previous war wounds took their toll, and on the 14th of December 1931, Jacker collapsed after a council meeting and was taken to a hospital that he never left. He died from chronic nephritis, kidney inflammation, one week after his 39th birthday. In a way, Albert Jacker, who had been such a symbol for the Great War, was now a symbol for all those other Australians who gave everything they had to a country and an idea, only to be left alone, broken and dead too soon. A distraction came in the form of sport, and yes, while it might seem a little bit like a small thing, joy needed to be found somewhere, and community spirit tended to bloom around the wireless. The cricket was on. It was the 12th of February, and Australia was celebrating a magnificent win over the visitors South Africa, after defeating them 5-0. Don Bradman was the name on everyone's lips, a batsman unlike anything anyone had seen before, who many believed was only just beginning to come into his own. Many were excited to see what would happen with the ashes that were coming up later that year. But as exciting as the cricket may be, it had nothing on the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The 19th of March was a Saturday, hot and sunny. The opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge was a social and political event unlike any other seen before or since. For many it represented achievement against unmeasurable odds, a great connective tissue that would finally pull Sydney together as a city of global standing. The culmination of seven years and 356 days of labour, more than 20 years of planning and over 117 years of talking about it, dating all the way back to when convict architect Francis Greenway suggested a floating wooden bridge at the exact point where the massive 39,000 tonne steel arch now spanned. It remains the largest of its design to this day and was the widest bridge in the world for 80 years until 2012 when the Canadians built one that's wider but really who cares. 750,000 people were there to witness the opening and it's said that within the first 24 hours 1 million people crossed the bridge. Three people died, two of old age, one person was hit by a truck. The only other event in Australia's history that was bigger was the 2000 Olympic closing ceremony. In fact, because organisers knew that it was going to be such a massive event, three days earlier, on the 16th of March, they held a special Children's Day. Tens of thousands of primary age children marched across the bridge first, and though the weather was grey and drizzling, it was unable to deter the joy and wonder that many of them felt as they gawked up at the incredible structure. But the opening of the bridge was steeped in political controversy. 
we had borrowed heavily from Britain to build this wonder, and therefore not only did we have to use a British company to build it, Dorman and Long, as well as British Steel, 80% of the steel in the Sydney Harbour Bridge is from Middlesbrough, Yorkshire, but we also, and here's the kicker, we had to pay them back. This was a feat that would not be achieved until 1988 because Australia was deep in the Great Depression. And yes, we did pay them back with interest. There had been the hope in the early 1920s when we had borrowed that insane amount of money that it would help boost development of our aged infrastructure. But after the bottom fell out of Wall Street in 1929, Mother Britain was beginning to regret giving the Colonials so much cash and was now already demanding repayments in an effort to stave off their own economic ruin. Yeah, good luck with that. In 1932, like I said, 33% of Australians were unemployed and in Sydney, that number was an unbearable 40%. One fact about the bridge that doesn't get too much of a mention is the number of people who jumped off it in 1932, with numbers varying from 150 to 200. There were some who regarded the bridge as our greatest folly, a debt that many people who walked across that first day would never live to see repaid. In fact, there were calls from various church groups and political parties to cancel the event altogether, that it was as unseemly as dancing at a funeral. But the biggest controversy wasn't if the bridge was going to be opened, that was a given. It was who was going to be opening it. And it was going to be none other than Jack Lang, Premier of New South Wales and all-round interesting person. Going by the nickname Big Fella, he was divisive to say the least, causing more annoyance and delight as he declared that he would cut the ribbon himself, as opposed to either the monarch, the Governor-General, or the Governor of New South Wales, Sir Philip Gain stating snidely that this was a money-saving measure. This was a jab at the Conservatives who had chastised Ling for his refusal to be a part of the Premier's plan, a scheme that was developed in 1930 as a way of combating the steep economic fall by cutting government spending and workers' wages. Lang didn't agree to this, and Point Blake refused to fall into line, going even further as to declare that not a single Australian pound should find its way into a British banker's pocket. This led to Joseph Lyons passing the Financial Agreement Enforcement Act in an attempt to force the New South Wales government to pay its debts and to cut government spending. Lang had a different plan. One week before the bridge was opened on the 12th of March, he ordered the New South Wales police to go around to the major banks and take all the physical money out of it, pretty much robbing the state of New South Wales blind and more or less committing treason. But in the same way that a bushfire crisis didn't stop the New Year's Eve fireworks, a little bit of a constitutional crisis wasn't about to stop the opening of the bridge. And the bridge was opened alright, but it wasn't Jack Lang who got the chance to cut the ribbon. It was a short, angry Irish fascist on a borrowed horse. Francis de Groot was a member of the New Guard, which was an offshoot of the Old Guard, an imperialistic organisation devoted to the British Empire and focused on preventing social revolution in Australia. Eric Campbell had been a member of the Old Guard, but felt the secrecy of it hindered true progress into the mainstream, and in 1931 had broken away to form his New Guard, which had all the same beliefs, but with a much more public, militaristic approach. They quickly began to organise themselves into a militia, and at their height had some 50,000 members. They were known for actively seeking out and attacking any meeting places for the Communist Party or for trade unions, or literally anyone who leant slightly to the left. 
They would bash anyone they found at these meetings, destroy property, aggravate the police, all in the name of Australian nationalism and safety, while Campbell sung the praises of Mussolini and Hitler and gave stiff-arm salutes. Lang's close ties with the trained unionists, coupled with his strong personality and obvious defiance of the British, meant that he was hated by the new guard, who viewed his intent to cut the ribbon of the bridge as something that couldn't be stood by. So up steps Francis de Groot, a Northern Irish captain with a Dutch last name. Halfway through the ceremony, before Lang got anywhere near the ribbon, de Groot burst out of the crowd, waving a ceremonial sword, galloped up towards the ribbon, and after shouting that he was doing this in the name of decent and respectable people, he cut the ribbon. Twenty seconds later, he's pulled off the horse and sent to the lunatic reception house in Darlinghurst because people think he's insane. He's kept there for three days until he's released on the 21st. And Jack Lang did officially cut the ribbon on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, but legend has it that they had to tie the ribbon together and cut it again. If you miss the midnight ferry, there's a path from shore to shore. Australia's sons, let us rejoice. It's the bridge we've been waiting for. On the exact same day that de Groot was opening the bridge, on the other side of the country in Fremantle, Western Australia, one of the most fascinating trials in Australian history had come to a close. The Murchison murders were truly stranger than fiction and proof that sometimes a little speculation can get out of hand. Crime writer Arthur Upfield had managed to publish his first novel in 1929, featuring the character of Detective Inspective Napoleon Bonaparte, otherwise known as Boney, a biracial blue-eyed Aboriginal man who was based on a real-life tracker known simply as Tracker Leon, who worked with the Queensland Police. Boney would go on to feature in 29 novels, but in 1931 Upfield was struggling with a follow-up novel that could continue the success of the Barracky Mystery. At this time, Upfield was working on the rabbit-proof fence, one of thousands travelling up and down those remote roads looking for any sort of work. One night, while dining in the mess hall at Camel Station, struggling with writer's block, Upfield turned to his friend George Ritchie. He wanted a unique plot for his story that could revolve around there being no body to be found, but couldn't think of a way to dispose of a body so thoroughly. After some back and forth, Ritchie and he devised a plan take the poor victim into the bush, shoot him, burn the body, hack away the flesh, burn it again but this time with some kangaroo parts, gather up any bones and metal, dissolve the metal in acid, powder the bones into dust and let it fly away on the wind. Upfield loved this idea and wrote it into his second novel, The Sands of Windy, hashing over the plot points on several different occasions at Camel Station to the interest and enthusiasm of the men working there. One man, however, was a little too interested. Snowy Rolls, real name John Thomas Smith, was one of those many men who listened to Upfield and Ritchie detail their perfect murder and decided that, yeah, it did seem like a pretty good idea. A month after Upfield had departed the station, his half-finished manuscript tucked away in his swag, Rolls also left Camel Station in the company of two men, James Ryan and George Lloyd, driving away in Ryan's car. 
About a month after that, Upfield managed to meet up with Rolls again, who was now alone and driving Ryan's car, which he claimed he had purchased for £80. Again, they parted ways and did not meet for another year. In that time span, Rolls met a New Zealander by the name of Louis Caron, and the two of them were last seen driving away together in search of work. Caron was never seen again. However, Rolls was later seen cashing a paycheck of Caron's at Painesville. Unlike James Ryan and George Lloyd, Louis Caron had been in regular contact with his friends and family back home, so when that contact stopped all of a sudden, they immediately knew that something was wrong. Once police started investigating Karen's disappearance, it was discovered that Ryan and Lloyd were also missing and that all three were last seen in the company of Snowy Rolls. In the middle of all this, The Sands of Windy, with its perfect murder, was published. Upfield was sought out by the police for help with the investigation and their search led them to the 183 Mile Hut where they found crushed bones and Karen's wedding ring. Karen had needed it resized, but the jeweler's assistant had accidentally used a 9 carat solder to rejoin the ends of an 18 carat ring. The result was a distinctive mark on the ring from the different coloured solder, which made the ring very unique. And Upfield actually used the mended ring device in a later novel known as The New Shoe. The Murchison murders might have been a rather subdued affair compared to what was happening in Sydney that day, but it was still a very strange series of events that culminated in Rolls being sentenced to hang later that year, but only for the murder of Louis Caron. Ryan and Lloyd's disappearances remain officially unsolved. Upfield would go on to have a rather successful career in writing, but unlike Arthur Conan Doyle, who would sometimes assist the police in solving crimes, Upfield would live the rest of his life knowing that he'd indirectly caused one. And a day after all that excitement, the opening of the bridge, the new guard protest, a man getting sentenced to hang after committing seemingly the perfect murder, on the 20th of March, people across the nation were glued to their wireless listening to Farlap, our greatest racehorse who just won his first race in Mexico. The month of March quietened down, but the 1st of April everything got going again as Francis de Groot fronted up in court. Before he even got into session, it was there that he had the very great pleasure of meeting one Tilly Devine, Queen of Darlinghurst and Madam of one of the Razor Gangs. By 1932, the worst of the Razor War had passed and now Devine was being called to court on the relatively mild charges of consorting with criminals. However, once she set eyes on de Groot, she apparently let loose at him, screaming all sorts of profanities, mocking the new guard and daring de Groot to try something flash with her. For all his posturing big words and gestures, de Groot was said to be stunned into silence in the face of one of Sydney's greatest and most flamboyant crime lords. Outside, things were just as tense. It was estimated that 3,000 people were outside, many of them new guard and many more just looking for a fight. It seemed that many of the Sydney's left and labour organisations had gotten a little sick of the new guards bully boy tactics and had decided that if they wanted to fight, they'd get a bloody fight. A huge brawl broke out in front of the courthouse that was then joined by the police who smashed their batons across the crowd, injured many and arrested three. But the spectacle of the court case and De Groot's subsequent release with only a £5 fine was lost 
in the midst of some tragic news. On the 6th of April at 10.30am, news started trickling through the wireless that Farlab, our greatest and most beloved racehorse, had died suddenly in San Francisco. It is still under contention whether he died of natural causes, misuse or misjudgment from his trainers, or was the victim of some foul murder plot, but either way, the public was devastated at the loss. His total winnings amounted to more than £70,000, and he was only five years old. May rolled around, and on the 13th of May... Funnily enough, a Friday the 13th, the Premier of New South Wales, Jack Lang, was dismissed by the Governor-General, Sir Philip Game, for failing to pay the state's taxes and to fall into line with the Premier's plan. Lang must have known this was coming, as his defiance and fairly radical ideas for social change were not that palpable to the federal government, as well as those who investigated in it. Also, you know, he robbed every single bank in New South Wales. Like, he must have known this was coming. Because of this, he left his office in a rather serene manner, stating to the pressman, Well, I am sacked. I am dismissed from office. I have attempted to do my duty, but now I must be going. I am no longer Premier, but a free man. On the very next day, on the 14th of May, a state election was held in Victoria. The Labour Party down there, already divided over the Premier's plan, and still in shock that the New South Wales counterpart had been dismissed, was heavily defeated by the United Australian Party and a United Country Party coalition. But while the Lang and Labour government all around might have been having a pretty bad time of it, they still had a soft warm bed and a dinner to go home to. In far northern Australia, two Germans were having a hell of a time as they attempted to fly through a fierce storm, crossing the Timor Sea. It didn't work, and on the 15th of May, pilot Hans Bertram and mechanic Adolf Klausmann were forced to land their seaplay, the Atlantis, in the first sheltered bay that they saw, just off the coast of the Kimberley region in northern Western Australia, some of the most remote and dangerous country in the world. And that was the last anyone heard of them for some while. June the 9th saw the death of Edith Cowan, the first Australian woman to be elected as a representative in the Australian Parliament and otherwise known as the Lady on the $50 Note. Though her tenure in the Parliament of Western Australia was short, lasting only three years from 1921 to 1924, she managed to push through some important legislation, such as allowing women to be involved in the legal profession, giving mothers the same legal rights as the father over their children, and promoting sex education in school. She was 70. On the 11th of June, Lang's Labour Party is heavily defeated in the New South Wales state election in a very similar manner that Victorian Labour was defeated earlier, losing 31 seats to the UAP Country Coalition. While Lang remained in Parliament for another 17 years, he never again returns to the kind of power that he had before. But an interesting side effect of this was the weakening of the New Guard. It had fulfilled its promise of destroying the Lang government, and many members now no longer saw a point to it. As Campbell became more and more overt about his fascist worship, the milder members drifted away from such, such hardline ideology, 
And this combined with the crackdown from the police, the souring of public opinion, as well as the fact that the unionists were now quite happy to bash them back, many people were now not quite so proud to identify themselves as a member of the new guard. Becoming rather reluctant to be associated with such an extremist organisation whose best known efforts were starting street fights with lefties and the actions of some guy on a horse with a sword. Even that man had left the party, De Groot resigning and returning to Ireland where he stayed for the rest of his life. Campbell tried his best to keep the fascist fire burning, meeting with like-minded people, publishing a manifesto, rebranding the New Guard into the Centre Party and contesting in the 1935 state election, to which the party only secured 0.6% of the votes. This finally broke Campbell, who retired from public life, and the whole thing soon collapsed afterwards. Back to WA, and the last of Snowy Roll's attempts to appeal against his conviction were rejected. He was hanged in Fremantle Prison on the 13th of June. On the 22nd of June, the missing German aviators were found sheltering in a cave. Their full story would come out later in July, and it came out at just the right time to be told. On the 1st of July, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, later Corporation, was launched. While an earlier version of this had been around since 1923, it wasn't until 1932 after a Royal Commission into Wireless Broadcasting recommended that radio licence fees be pulled to fund larger A-class stations, that 12 stations banded together to form a comprehensive advertisement-free series of stations that would provide a wide variety of information and content for public consumption that was funded by the said public, with grants from the government while still remaining politically neutral. People of the street loved it. Music, entertainment, sport, news directly from London, shipping times, a woman's corner, a children's corner. In the midst of the Great Depression, suddenly anyone with a wireless could connect to the world in a way that they never had been able to before, and people flocked to their neighbours' homes to share in the thrill of it all. Politicians and newspaper owners, like one Keith Murdoch, bloody hated it, claiming it to be too Russian in its design, so obviously communist and clearly a tool of government propaganda. And not much has changed in this debate since 1932. But it was a good time for free-to-air news, sports and current events as they were about to get one hell of a story from far northern Australia about what exactly happened to those Germans. Bertram and Klassman really did not have a good time in the Kimberleys. They were forced down on the 15th of May and that very night an unidentified Aboriginal man approached them but as they were unable to communicate he soon left. After the storm passed, the Germans once again attempted to reach Darwin, and while they successfully took off, they only managed to make it another 35 kilometres along the coast before they ran out of fuel and had to land on a small beach. With no other option and unable to find fresh water, they decided to see if they could locate that Aboriginal man again. This did not go well. With no food or water, walking in the humid heat, they were soon exhausted and covered in mosquitoes. At one point, they stripped down to swim across a small inlet where they were unfortunately chased away by crocodiles, losing their clothes and their shoes and facing the rest of the ordeal naked. After a week of aimless walking, they managed to find their way back to the downed plane. After draining the last of the radiator water, the pair made a canoe out of one of the plane's floats and attempted to paddle west. 
It was then that horrible hope literally passed them by. The ship, the MV Kulinda, sailed right past them only 500 metres away, but did not see the lost pair. They paddled for four days and nights and eventually came ashore north of Cape Bernia, just east of the King George River. Unfortunately, they believed themselves to be on Melville Island and tried to walk overland to find civilization. When they realized their mistake, they again returned to the canoe to find that it had been damaged in their absence. While they did try to repair it and once again paddle west, they only made it a few more kilometers before they felt that it was too unsafe to continue. Once again, they returned to the shore and after finding shelter under a rock ledge, they remained there. At this stage, the two of them had more or less accepted that their death was inevitable, with Klausman taking it worse as he slipped in and out of lucidity. After 39 days of being lost, both of them were amazed when a young Aboriginal man appeared at the side of the rock ledge, holding out a speared fish towards them. The young man was called Miaman. He quickly lit a fire and soon three more men showed up, one of whom was carrying a canvas bag filled with flour, tinned meat and a letter from the Drysdale River Mission. While none of the Aboriginal men spoke English, this letter explained that they were actually part of a search party that had been looking for the aviators for weeks. Two of the party immediately began the trip back to the mission to inform the authorities, a journey of 86 kilometres, while the others stayed with the Germans and tried to help them recuperate. At first, the Germans were too weak to eat, so Miamin actually chewed their food for them, like one would for an infant. Over the next five days, a series of other people dropped by, all alerted by the signal fire, though not part of the search party themselves. It must have been a point of interest and curiosity, and the older women in particular seemed very concerned about the Germans' health, bringing them grass to sleep on, as well as the fantastic bush delicacy of wild honey. At first the men pushed the honey away with disgust, which was met by waves of laughter from the locals, before finally being convinced of its merit. After a week of slow recovery, a white police officer arrived to escort them away. This particular police officer later made himself out to be the big hero of the story, in which he insinuated that the locals knew where the Germans were the whole time and would have killed them if the big brave copper hadn't arrived when he did. By the time the men were reported found, they had been missing for 53 days. Thank goodness for the speed of the police. Paul Klausman had to be institutionalised for a period as he had taken to bashing his head against walls and was convinced that the Aboriginals had been fattening him up to eat him. He returned to Germany on a steamliner and never flew again. Bertram, however, recovered fairly quickly and even returned to the Atlantis, repaired it and flew it back to Perth, and then later crashed it at Kalgoorlie. He was heard to remark, I don't believe I shall fly anymore in 1932. He wrote a book about his experience called Flug in die Holla, Flight into Hell, and later became a successful film director. The story was an international sensation, but while many Western audiences took from this the idea that there was no such thing as a truly hopeless situation, what they probably should have been focusing on was the bravery, resourcefulness and kindness of a people who we were still very much actively trying to wipe out. Remember, the last official massacre in Australia's history had happened only four years earlier in 1928.
And now for the single most important thing that happened in 1932. On November the 2nd, we declared war against emus. The Emu War, or the Great Emu War, if you will, came about after farmers in Western Australia requested help with dealing with some 20,000 emus that were destroying their already difficult to grow crops. Many of these farmers were ex-soldiers who had been granted land after returning from the war with the instructions that they would be growing wheat. But with falling prices squeezing farmers who were already facing financial difficulties and were waiting on subsidies that had yet to be delivered, this added to a bit of anger and disillusionment and fueled the chatter about Western Australia succeeding and becoming their own nation. The way the federal government sought to quell these tensions was, at the very least, to offer some sort of pest control. Major G.P.W. Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery came out with exactly two soldiers, both armed with Lewis guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition, and they spent the next month shooting emus. I don't know how much you know about emus, but they move really bloody weirdly. At the first sign of danger, mobs tend to break out into smaller groups and scatter, making mass shooting very difficult. They can also run really fast. At one point, the men mounted one of the guns onto the truck, but not only were they unable to keep pace with the birds, the rough terrain made shooting impossible. Still, three blokes and two machine guns running around the outback shooting emus still wasn't the strangest thing that had happened that year, in all honesty. Back in New South Wales on the 28th of November, Prime Minister Lyons finally had something simple and fun to do. He unveiled the dog in the tucker box just outside of Gundagai. And then there was Bodyline. Bodyline, or the fast leg theory, was a tactic used by the English cricket team against the Australians in the Ashes Test of 1932-33, specifically against Don Bradman, where instead of aiming at the stumps, you aim at the person. I'm just going to leave it at that. It's still a massive piece of contention to this day, but let me just say this. I don't think it's right to throw a cricket ball directly at a person's body. I've been hit by a cricket ball once by accident, and it sucks. We lost that Ashes, but we never used Bodyline ourselves. However, one year later in 1933, the visiting West Indies cricket team, having heard of such a thing, saw no problem in serving out to the English what they had previously served out to the Australians, giving the English public their very first chance to see Bodyline in action. It was not well received at all. For some reason, they didn't like watching their own sportsmen getting pummeled, and while the match ended in a draw, the opinion of Bodyline rapidly reversed from it's legal, the Australians just whinges, to oh yeah, that looks pretty bad. In fact, the Wiseton Cricketers' Almanac, which is also known as the Bible of Cricket, later said of Bodyline that most of those watching it for the first time must have come to the conclusion that, while strictly within the law, it was not nice. And back to Western Australia. On the 10th of December, we officially declared the Great Emu War over. Although we had killed 900 of them in battle, we ultimately lost the war. And funnily enough, there was a protest in the UK over the extermination of the rare emu, which was held just before Christmas, which is what a way to end the year. 1932 was weird and messy, and every story mentioned could have been told in so much more detail. There was also many, many stories that was not mentioned. It was just a really interesting year. 
like I said before, sometimes it just feels like everything just happens so much and that time can just blur into one thing. But that doesn't always mean it's a bad thing. At any rate, it keeps life interesting. <laughs>